My name is Linos Alexander Sicilianos. I am Vice President of the European Court of Human Rights. My subject of today will be the European Court of Human Rights facing the Security Council towards systemic harmonization. The judicial review of measures implementing decisions of the United Nations Security Council has proved to be an important and sensitive issue in international law. The question has been recently examined by the Institute of International Law. The same issue has repeatedly arisen in the case law of the European Court of Human Rights, from the 2005 Bosphorus judgment to the recent Aldulimi case, with a number of other significant cases along the way. Beyond the technical aspects of those cases, the central question they raise concerns the relationship between the United Nations system and that of the European Convention on Human Rights. A retrospective examination of the relevant cases may sometimes give the impression that the European Court oscillates between a somewhat reserved attitude and a significantly more assertive approach, at times showing reverence towards the Security Council and at other times a form of defiance toward it. It is therefore important to, to step back from this often sensitive dispute and to attempt to conceptualize the issue as a whole. To do so, we need to make a distinction between Security Council resolutions that involve the use of armed force and those which impose economic sanctions. First of all, the two types of resolutions have a different legal basis. Economic sanctions are imposed on the basis of Article 41 of the United Nations Charter. Military operations are based mainly on Article 42, or better still, at least in the case of authorized operations, on Chapter 7 of the Charter as a whole. The two series of resolutions also differ as regards the means and procedure for their implementation. The latter involve the deployment of military troops abroad. The former require the establishment of a legal and regulatory framework to enforce the economic sanctions within the territory of the forum state. The execution of resolutions involving the use of armed force will almost inevitably raise the question of the extraterritorial application of the European Convention on Human Rights. Indeed, human rights problems normally arise when the participating state contributes military troops to be deployed abroad within the territory of the state in crisis. Much has been written about the extraterritorial application of the European Convention on Human Rights. It is not the purpose of this lecture to dwell on this subject in detail. Let me simply observe that the decision in the Bankovic case concerning the bombardment of the former Yugoslavia by NATO forces, this decision was somehow case-specific. Since then, the court has clearly nuanced it and refined important aspects of it. The Alskeini, Algeda and Jalud judgments all related to the conflict in Iraq, testify to this development. The principle established in the court's case law in this sphere is that, while being essentially territorial in its application, the European Convention on Human Rights may be applicable outside the territory of the state concerned. This can happen in a range of specific situations, including and especially when that state's armed forces 
are operating abroad. This position is corroborated by the case law of the International Court of Justice and the practice of the Human Rights Committee. It is noteworthy that the approach pursued by these international bodies is now unequivocal on this point. It reflects the principle of general international law that every internationally wrongful act of a state entails the international responsibility of that state, irrespective of where the act has uh, been perpetrated or the source of the obligation breached. The distinction drawn by the European Court of Human Rights between attribution and jurisdiction cannot call into question this fundamental principle. It must also be acknowledged that the extraterritorial scope of the European Convention on Human Rights is taking on greater importance nowadays. This is so because the state's parties to the European Convention are increasingly active in the context of military operations abroad, usually on the basis of a Security Council resolution. To insist on the regional nature of the European Convention would sit ill with this significant development for maintaining and, uh, and restoring international peace and security, while also leaving a black hole in human rights protection. Another question that needs to be clarified regarding the responsibility of states acting in execution of Security Council resolutions involving the use of force concerns the distinction between military multinational operations authorized by the Security Council and the United Nations peacekeeping, peacemaking or peace enforcement operations. The latter are UN operations in that their name refers uh, to that organization. They use UN flag and emblems. They are generally funded from the UN budget. Their personnel are treated as UN personnel. And above all, they are placed under UN command. On the basis of those factors, UN peacekeeping operations constitute subsidiary bodies of the Security Council. The situation is entirely different for multinational forces. Their designation does not refer to the United Nations. They do not use UN emblems. Their budget is funded by the participating states. Their personnel are not treated as UN personnel. And above all, they are placed under the command air control of either a state or a regional organization, but not the UN. Unlike UN peacekeeping operations, multinational forces are not subsidiary bodies of the United Nations. That being so, the two types of operations should not be placed on the same footing, as the European Court did in the Behrami and Saramati case concerning the situation in Kosovo. To maintain that UN operations such as UNMIC and multinational operations such as K4 are both placed under the ultimate authority and control of the Security Council and that their acts are attributable to the UN would appear to be an oversimplistic approach. It is significant that in the commentary of its draft articles on responsibility of international organizations, the United Nations International Law Commission made a clear distinction between these two situations by noting that Unlike in the case of UN peacekeeping operations, conduct of military forces of states 
or international organization is not attributable to the UN when the Security Council authorizes states or international organizations to take necessary measures outside a chain of command linking those forces to the United Nations. In such circumstances, the conduct at issue is attributable to the entity that exerts effective control over it, that is, a state participating in the multinational force, or the international organization that assumes command over the operation, or both, in the case of shared responsibility. In light with this approach, the Algenda versus the United Kingdom judgment adopted by the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights, set matters straight. It found that the Security Council had neither effective control nor ultimate authority and control over the acts or omissions of troops within the multinational force operating in Iraq under Security Resolution 1546. The applicant's detention was therefore not attributable to the United Nations, but to the respondent state. Admittedly, the court was careful to distinguish the situation in Kosovo in the context of the Behrami and Saramati cases from the situation prevailing in Iraq at the time of the facts relating to the Algeda case. The geopolitical background to these cases was indeed very different. From a strictly legal point of view, however, it must be acknowledged that the Security Council did not have any more control over K4, set up under Resolution 1244, than it had over the multinational force authorized to operate in Iraq by Resolution 1546. Both cases involved multinational forces acting outside the chain of command linking them to the UN. In other words, the Grand Chamber was right to shift its approach as regards the attribution of the acts of multinational forces to the participating states and not the United Nations. The more recent judgment in Jalud versus the Netherlands confirms this approach. While mentioning the Security Council authorization by means of Resolution 1511, the court emphasized that the Netherlands had retained full command over its contingent. This element was decisive for establishing the Netherlands' jurisdiction within the meaning of Article 1 of the European Convention on Human Rights. The Algeda judgment also set matters straight on another important point, Article 103 of the UN Charter and its applicability to operations authorized by the UN Security Council. It will be recalled that Article 103 provides, and I quote, in the event of a conflict between the obligations of the member states of the United Nations under the present charter and their obligations under any other international agreement, their obligations under the present charter shall prevail. Article 103 is a provision regulating any conflict of obligations under the charter and another treaty, including the European Convention. Contrary to the Behrami and Saramati decision, in which Article 103 was invoked, the Algeda judgment avoided relying on that provision. For good reason, because Article 103 does not apply to operations that have simply been authorized by the Security Council. Authorizations of this kind amount to an invitation or an encouragement for member states to take part 
in a particular military operation. They do not create any legal obligation to do so. Furthermore, the wording of the Security Council authorization is generally fairly flexible, referring to maintaining order and security, for example. The Security Council always leaves considerable discretion to the states participating in the operation concerned. As the European Court noted in the Algeda judgment, and I quote, the terminology of Resolution 1546 appears to leave the choice of the means, the choice of the means, to achieve this end to the member states within the multinational force, end of quotation. In these circumstances, the presumption must be that the Security Council intended states to contribute towards maintaining security in Iraq while complying at the same time with their obligations under human rights law. This is a strong presumption. Why? Because the Security Council is supposed to act in accordance with the main purposes of the United Nations, including respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms. As the Court observed, on the basis of a detailed analysis of the terms used by the Security Council, nothing in Resolution 1546 could be construed as imposing any obligation on the United Kingdom to place an individual in indefinite detention without charge. In the absence of a binding obligation to use internment, there was no conflict between the United Kingdom's obligations under the Charter of the United Nations and its obligations under Article 5 of the European Convention. Similar observations apply to all operations authorized by the Security Council. Since 1990, the Security Council has authorized more than 30 operations, in each case according to the same logic. The Council notes the existence of a threat to the peace, gives the go-ahead for the setting of a multinational force, lays down the general mandate for the operation and the objectives to be achieved, and then carries out an extremely limited supervision of the conduct of the operations, leaving considerable discretion to the participating states. In these circumstances, the problem of a direct conflict between the obligations flowing from the Charter and the respondent states' human rights obligations does not even arise in practice. To maintain the contrary would be to disregard the nature, the particularities and the profile of authorized operations. Beyond the question of authorized operations, it is important to consider the further issue of the responsibility of states' parties to the European Convention that supply troops to a UN peacekeeping operation. In the Behrami and Saramati decision, the court held that the acts or omissions of UNMIC were attributable to the UN. More recently, in the Stichting Mothers of Srebrenica decision, the court found that the Netherlands courts had rightly refused to consider the application on the merits. The Netherlands courts referred to the United Nations immunity from jurisdiction in relation to the activities of the United Nations protecting force in Bosnia, the UNPROFOR. Both solutions are correct in principle. Contrary to authorized operations, peacekeeping operations are subsidiary organs to the United Nations. Their actions may engage the responsibility of the organization. This principle has long been accepted by the United Nations. As the UN Legal Council has observed, 
as a subsidiary organ of the United Nations, an act of a peacekeeping force is in principle imputable to the organization. However, this position is based on the assumption that the United Nations has exclusive control of the deployment of national contingent in a peacekeeping force. This is how it should be. Nevertheless, in practice, there have been cases where the national contingents have continued to seek and receive orders from their national authorities. In the case of uh, United Nations operation in Somalia, for instance, the force commander was not in effective control of several national contingents. National forces had persisted in seeking orders from their home authorities. There were even operations undertaken under the UN flag that were totally outside the command and control of the United Nations. Clearly, in such circumstances, it is virtually impossible to attribute the actions of the national contingents to the United Nations. There have also been certain cases where a multinational force and the United Nations mission have carried out a joint operation. In such cases, international responsibility for the conduct of the troops lies with the entity in which operational command and control is vested according to the terms of the cooperation arrangements between the state providing the troops to the United Nations and the United Nations themselves. In the absence of such arrangements, responsibility will be determined in each case according to the degree of effective control exercised by either party in the conduct of the operation. This reasoning applies to all UN peacekeeping operations. In other words, where and to the extent that the contributing state retains control over the conduct at issue, its responsibility may also be engaged. The criterion of effective control on the ground is a factual element. This element is decisive for the purposes of attributing the contact to the UN, to the contributing state or to both. That being so, it is important for the European Court of Human Rights to look at each case in rather greater depth, to examine whether the respondent state had effective control over the conduct at issue. The court will have to determine each individual case on the basis of the particular facts. Let me turn now to the issue of the responsibility of states' parties to the European Convention in enforcing economic sanctions adopted by the Security Council. Before doing so, it is important to remember that during the sanctions decade, the 1990s, the Security Council generally adopted global economic sanctions. These were measures against a state and hence an entire people such as the economic sanctions against Iraq following its invasion of Kuwait, the former Yugoslavia or Haiti. The famous Bosphorus case related to this generation of sanctions. In the year 2000, the then Undersecretary General for Political Affairs did not hesitate to describe these sanctions as blunt instruments, which had a devastating impact on the economy of the state affected, especially on the economic and social rights of its population, without necessarily achieving the aim pursued. Neighboring states suffered significant side effects. 
the interlichen and the bond berlin processes led to a reform of this system and the introduction of smart or targeted sanctions. These are sanctions aiming directly at the decision makers and their immediate circles and seeking to spare the population of the state concerned. The issue of Security Council and European Union blacklists relates mainly to this second generation of sanctions. It should not be forgotten that this reform process led to a significant improvement in the Security Council's power to impose sanctions. However, although the overall effects of this new generation of measures were relatively limited, targeted sanctions raised other problems relating in particular to civil rights and traditional freedoms. According to the Council of Europe's Parliamentary Assembly, the procedural and substantive standards applied by the Security Council and the European Union violate the fundamental principles of human rights and the rule of law. The well-known Cadi 1 case, decided by the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, is to be seen against this overall background. The same applies to two important cases decided by the European Court of Human Rights, the cases of NADA and Aldulimi versus Switzerland. Following this brief summary of the historical context, it is important to note that cases concerning economic sanctions do not raise the issue of the extraterritorial application of the European Convention on Human Rights. The measures implementing economic sanctions are applied in the territory of the respondent state. However, the questions arising in connection with economic sanctions differ according to whether or not the state enforcing the sanctions is a member of the European Union. In the first scenario, the EU regulation enforcing the economic sanctions imposed by the Security Council acts as a kind of screen. Its existence was what caused the European Court of Justice in the Cadi 1 case to find that there had been a violation of a series of fundamental rights without calling into question, at least in formal terms, the legality of the Security Council's actions. The dispute focused on the procedure for the implementation of the Council's resolution and not the act of imposing sanctions as such. The same is true in the case law of the Strasbourg Court. The Bosphorus judgment puts forward the equivalent protection doctrine. According to this legal construction, the European Court of Human Rights recognizes that states are free to transfer powers to international organizations. If the international organization concerned provides more or less an equivalent comparable protection to that afforded by the European Convention on Human Rights, there is a presumption. The presumption will be that a state satisfies the requirements of the European Convention when it does no more than implement legal obligations flowing from its membership of the organization. However, the presumption in question is rebuttable. It can be rebutted if it is considered that the protection of the European Convention rights was manifestly deficient. In such cases, the European Court considers that the European Convention on Human Rights as a constitutional instrument should prevail over the interests of international cooperation.
The facts of the Bosphorus case made it clear that the procedure for executing the relevant Security Council resolution was dictated by the UN Sanctions Committee in New York. However, the Community Regulation, the EU regulation implementing the UN sanctions, formed the legal basis for the impoundment of the aircraft at issue. In other words, the European Community Regulation acted as a shield, leaving the Security Council safe from any reproach. The Strasbourg Court's attention was focused on the guarantees of human rights protection in community law, in EU law. These guarantees were held to be equivalent to those provided by the European Convention on Human Rights. The Strasbourg Court also considered that there was generally a presumption of equivalence between the human rights protection within the community system, the EU system, and the protection of order under the European Convention. Once the Court has found that EU law does afford equivalent protection, the respondent state, where it has correctly applied that law, is likewise safe from criticism. Its responsibility cannot be engaged. In other words, if the court considers that the presumption is applicable and has not been rebutted, the conclusion is inevitable. There must be a finding of no violation. However, the European Court of Human Rights should apply the equivalent protection doctrine vis-à-vis -vis the EU with caution. An attentive examination on a case-by-case -case basis will be needed if the Strasbourg Court is to discharge its duty properly. Such an approach has been recently confirmed by the judgment in Avotins versus Latvia. As the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights put it, and I quote, the Court considers that the question whether the full potential of the supervisory mechanisms provided for by European Union law was deployed should be assessed in the light of the specific circumstances of each case. Specific circumstances of each case. Having highlighted this development, we still need to address the questions relating to the implementation of Security Council resolutions by the parties to the European Convention that are not EU member states, like Switzerland, for instance. While the practical difference between this scenario and the one discussed above may appear purely formal, in legal terms the distinction between the two situations is considerable. A non-member state of the EU that adopts measures to implement a Security Council resolution is a direct agent in the enforcement of the resolution. In such circumstances, there is no EU regulation and hence no screen, no shield between the system of the UN Charter on the one hand and the European Convention on Human Rights on the other hand. This means that if we are to apply the equivalent protection criterion here, we will need to compare the guarantees provided by the European Convention with those afforded by the procedure before the Security Council and its sanctions committees. It is true that following the virulent criticisms of the blacklisting process, the Security Council set up the office of the Ombudsperson. More recently, this procedure has been extended and reinforced. It must be acknowledged, however, that despite these developments, the proceedings before the Ombudsperson are essentially diplomatic in nature. 
they lead at most to a recommendation to the sanctioned committee concerning delisting. The ombudsperson does not take binding decision. The procedure before the ombudsperson clearly does not offer comparable guarantees to those afforded by the judicial system established by the European Convention on Human Rights. One might therefore wonder whether the equivalent protection criteria is relevant in this context. Admittedly, the criterion was formulated in general terms in the Bosphorus case. In theory, it can be applied in respect of any international organization to which the parties to the European Convention decide to transfer powers potentially touching upon human rights. It is true that in the case, in the case of Gasparini versus Italy and Belgium, for example, the European Court applied the equivalent protection test outside the EU context in respect of NATO. The subject matter in this case concerned the rights of NATO officials and their compatibility with the guarantees of a fair trial. The application of the equivalent protection doctrine in relation to NATO has been possible, however, because NATO's constitutive treaty, the North Atlantic Treaty of 1949, contains no clause that is comparable to Article 103 of the UN Charter. In fact, no other constitutive instrument of an international organization contains such a clause. The United Nations Charter and its Article 103 are unique in that regard. Article 103 constitutes the cornerstone of the international legal order. It is an element of hierarchy of obligations in international law. The United Nations and other international organizations cannot, therefore, be placed on the same plane. This means that the equivalent protection test does not simply apply to all international organizations alike. To the extent that Article 103 is applicable to economic sanctions adopted by the Security Council, UN law itself contains a rule which governs any conflict between obligations arising from the Charter and from any other international agreement. More specifically, when it comes to the implementation of the Security Council's binding economic sanctions by non-member states of the EU, there are two sides to the equation. Either there is no real conflict of obligations for the respondent state, in which case the equivalent protection test does not even come into play, or there is a conflict of obligations, but then it will be governed by Article 103 of the UN Charter. In both cases, the equivalent protection test is inapplicable to a situation such as the present. It is significant that in the two cases concerning blacklisting by the Swiss authorities, the NADA and the Aldulimi judgments, the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights carefully avoided relying on that test. In the same cases, the Court also skirted around the application of Article 103 of the UN Charter. On the face of it, that provision is indeed applicable in this context. Economic sanctions are, in principle, imposed by binding Security Council resolutions based on Article 41 of the Charter, they are not simply authorized. It should be borne in mind, however, that Article 103 does not concern a conflict of norms in abstracto. 
It is aimed at resolving in concreto a potential conflict of obligations. This means that the court must determine in each individual case whether a conflict of obligations is indeed present. In doing so, the court takes as its starting point a strong presumption that the obligations flowing from the UN Charter should be harmonized with those deriving from the European Convention on Human Rights. In other words, in its most recent case law, the court has adopted an approach that seeks to reconcile states' obligations under the European Convention and the Charter. As the Grand Chamber has noted, in interpreting its resolutions, there must be a presumption that the Security Council does not intend to impose any obligation on member states to breach fundamental principles of human rights. In the event of any ambiguity in the terms of a Security Council resolution, the Court must choose the interpretation which is most in harmony with the requirements of the Convention. The interpretation which avoids any conflict of obligations. To put it another way, having regard to the normative framework governing the Security Council's activities, there is a presumption whereby its resolutions do not create any obligations that are incompatible with human rights. The presumption in question is admittedly rebuttable. Nevertheless, any doubt must be dispelled in favour of an interpretation of the relevant Security Council resolutions which avoids a conflict of obligations. This idea of presumption was used in NADA versus Switzerland and has been developed in the Aldulimi judgment of 2016. The European Court of Human Rights first underlines that it is to be expected that clear and explicit language would be used were the Security Council to intend states to take particular measures which would conflict with their obligations under international human rights law. In the absence of any clear or explicit wording, excluding or limiting respect for human rights in the context of the implementation of sanctions, the Court must always presume that those measures are compatible with the Convention. The words must always presume do not mean that this presumption suddenly becomes irrebuttable. It is certainly not in dispute that, apart from norms of use cogens, the Security Council has the possibility of provisionally departing from specific human rights provisions. However, the presumption of human rights compliance by Security Council resolution is a strong presumption. Only clear and explicit language is capable of rebutting it. Any vague, ambiguous or implicit terms would not have this effect. As a rule, although Security Council resolutions may be binding, as are resolutions that impose economic sanctions, they leave states a certain margin of appreciation as to their implementation. This applies in particular to the means to be employed or the possibility of derogation on humanitarian grounds. By making use of this latitude, states must find appropriate solutions in order to harmonize their obligations. Only if such harmonization proves impossible will Article 103 of the Charter be applicable. In other words, 
this article applies only as a last resort. Article 103 applies once all other possible means of harmonizing the state's obligation have been exhausted. Applying this methodology in Aldulimi, the court finds that the relevant Security Council resolution, resolution 1483, did not expressly prohibit access to a court. The resolution did not prohibit the possibility for the national courts to verify, in terms of human rights, the blacklisting measures taken at national level. Nor does the European Court detect any other legal factor that could legitimize such a restrictive interpretation. Consequently, the European Court considers that the fact that it has remained totally impossible for the applicants to challenge the confiscation measure for many years is hardly conceivable in a democratic society. Such drastic restriction on the right to access to a court would impair the essence of that right. On the other hand, the European Court takes account of the nature and legitimate aim of the impugned measures, namely the protection of international peace and security. In order to strike a fair balance between human rights and international peace and security, the European Court takes the view that the courts of the respondent state should have exercised sufficient scrutiny so that any arbitrariness could be avoided. In other words, the scrutiny here is limited. It concerns only the necessity to avoid arbitrariness. This is the absolute minimum because arbitrariness is the negation of the rule of law. The European Court reiterates that one of the fundamental components of European public order is the principle of the rule of law and arbitrariness constitutes the negation of that principle. Moreover, in the context of such scrutiny, the applicants should have been afforded at least a genuine opportunity to submit appropriate evidence to a court for examination on the merits in order to show that their inclusion on the impugned lists had been arbitrary. This means that, at least at the outset, the burden of proof is on the applicants. They have to prove that the measures taken against them are arbitrary in nature. As thus defined, the scrutiny intended by the European Court of Human Rights in Aldulimi does not place an excessive burden on the national judicial authorities. At the same time, it takes into account the imperatives of the protection of international peace and security, on the one hand, and the rights at the heart of the European Convention system, on the other hand. This approach tends to harmonize the two systems, the UN system and the European human rights system. In my opinion, this is a wise approach. It has the merit of avoiding a systemic conflict or even the fragmentation of the international legal order. It seeks to promote a coherent view of international law. The court avoids calling into question the Security Council decision as such, or encouraging states to engage in a form of disobedience towards this important body. At the same time, the court assumes its role in guaranteeing the values enshrined in the European Convention on Human Rights.
In conclusion, it will be noted that the European Court is in the process of refining its conceptual tools for determining the responsibility of the state's parties to the European Convention acting in execution of a Security Council resolution. Where the implementation of resolutions involving the use of force is concerned, the Court's recent case law has shown a shift towards a systematic acceptance of the extraterritorial scope of the European Convention. As to whether the conduct in issue should be attributed to the state's parties or to the UN, the Court now makes a clear distinction between operation authorized by the Security Council and UN peacekeeping operations. The former are placed under national command and control authorities. Consequently, the question of the United Nations responsibility does not even arise. In the case of UN operations, however, it is important to undertake a more detailed examination of the question of shared responsibility between the UN and states contributing troops. The question of the responsibility of state parties to the European Convention in the implementation of resolutions imposing economic sanctions will be addressed differently according to whether or not the respondent state is a member of the European Union. The criterion of equivalent protection is only applicable in the former scenario and in any event it needs to be applied cautiously on a case-by-case -case basis. As regards the enforcement of economic sanctions by non-EU member states, the Court tends to interpret Security Council resolutions in a manner consistent with the obligations deriving from the European Convention on Human Rights. Such an approach seeks to avoid a conflict of obligations and thus tension between the UN system and the European Convention system. The Court favours an integrated and harmonised interpretation and application of potentially conflicting obligations of states under the two systems. In other words, the Court's approach is oriented toward systemic harmonisation than towards normative conflict. At the same time, the Security Council should continue to improve the sanctions process through greater observance of the principles of the rule of law. The Court, for its part, can only affirm and consolidate its role in guaranteed the fundamental values of European public order. Thank you for your attention.